I want to talk about black beauty culture in general. Yep. I know your book uh, is with regards to Canada's uh, black beauty culture, you know, the roots, you were tracing the roots. And uh, I'm on a mission to encourage black women to stop uh, straightening their hair, relaxing their hair, or wearing a uh, weave. And uh, I've been warned that this is a very dangerous mission. <laughs> so, <laughs> because like, the, so many elements, please, can you, uh, yeah, can you elaborate on that? Well, because that too is about consciousness. <laughs> I mean, everything is about your consciousness and your awareness and your ability to ask yourself, especially as it relates to beauty culture, um, to ask yourself, is this in my best interest in terms of my personhood, not in terms of dating, career, relationship, money, power, like all the, the stuff, the outward stuff that I could understand. So for example, there's a lot of women who wear a wig because they work in a certain place and they know that that's more acceptable because it's gonna, you know, it's just more acceptable. There's a lot of women who same thing, they wear weave because the standard of beauty says your hair better be long and straight and silky. And they know that that's gonna give them a sort of an advantage in many areas, especially in relationships, let's face it, a lot of women's hair choices, I don't know if you want to hear this, but they really are driven by men's interests. Men tend to like women who have long straight hair or at least straightened hair. That is a preference in heterosexual relationships that I have noticed and had to push back against in my entire life. For a lot of women, they acquiesce to that. And so they want to please and be seen as beautiful. <clears throat> so there are a lot of constraints, right? And reasons. But when you scrape the surface of all those reasons that actually, as you get older, they're more justifications <laughs> than actual reasons. You have to ask yourself, is this in my best interest as a person? Is it in my best interest in terms of how I see myself, in terms of how I honor myself, in terms of health and all the other things? And of course, that's a very tricky conversation to have with someone whose consciousness is not there yet, right? Because mm. self-care actually takes a lot of, you have to awaken. I don't want to get too deep. I feel like, you know, I'm getting a little bit. Please, like, please, please, please it, go ahead. Because, someone needs to hear this. Yeah, because some of this is a spiritual journey and spiritual is not the same thing as religion, right? Because a lot of people who go to church, they weave in and relax and wear the wig. It has nothing to do with religion. I'm talking about a certain journey that we all have to take in life to figure out who we are and, and why we do the things that we do. And if you are able to live with yourself wearing a weave, knowing you're doing this because you want to keep a husband or you want to keep a man or you want to keep the job, if you're okay with that, then I come from the school of thought that I can't judge that person and, and tell them not to do that. Like, I can't tell you, okay, you're wrong. But what I can tell you is that over here, there's another way. <laughs> and oh, that yeah. other way isn't, that other way sort of um, has nothing to do with outward, um, the external is what I'm saying to you. It has everything to do yeah. with the internal. I was wondering, you said that uh, men like uh, straight hair. I, I was thinking that that's probably not the case for most people. I know. Is that like factually speaking? I mean, I think I think 
Because yeah, most things, most things that women do, obviously this is coming from anecdote, right? Most things that women do, they they think they're doing it for men, and men like that. But men, primarily speaking, are not really interested in you know all the whatever the spectacle, the extras that comes yeah. with it. I mean, I think what I've learned is that men like you to just be real. <laughs> like, I don't think men typically like weaves. Like, I don't think that they, like, I just don't think that is something that men necessarily like. But if they're going to step out to some really posh, posh event, and there's a lot of white people in there, I bet you they like the weave then. They probably don't mind it in that case. But behind closed doors, maybe not so much. I think, yes, I think it's not to say that this is driven by men saying things overtly to women. I do think a lot of this is our perception of what men would find attractive, right? It's on us. It's like what we are thinking because we're in a world, just like you, just like the CRT conversation, just like we're in a, a world dominated by white images. We're also in a world dominated by white aesthetics, straightened hair, um, thin nose, like all the stuff that you see and it, but the weird thing in popular culture, increasingly you're seeing a lot of black women body parts, <laughs> right? Walking down the runway and you're like, okay, her lips look a lot bigger than they did last year, right? So everybody likes our parts. And I'm thinking of Kim Kardashian elk. They love the aesthetics of blackness. I don't know how they would want to be in black skin though. Like, I don't know if they want to absorb that, but they'll take the lips, they'll take the parts that they find attractive, our fuller lips, our fuller derriere. Um, maybe they like the idea of some of them really like the, our hair is always black typically. So they like really dye their hair like a, like Kim Kardashian's hair is like midnight black. <laughs> it's like, right. And I think, so there's things that they like, but the other stuff, they just leave that. I don't think Kim Kardashian's going to widen her nose anytime soon. On today's episode, I'm going to be having a conversation with Professor Cheryl Thompson. Professor Thompson is an assistant professor in creative industries at Rising University, Toronto, Canada. She holds a PhD in communication studies from McGill University, Montreal. She previously held a Banting postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Toronto. In 2021, she was named to the Royal Society of Canada's College of New Scholars, Artists and Scientists. And she is the author of Uncle, Race, Nostalgia, and the Politics of Loyalty, and also Beauty in a Box, Detangling the Roots of Canada's Black Beauty Culture. Professor Thompson is currently working on her third book on Canada's history of blackface as performance and anti-black racism. In addition to publishing in academic journals, magazines, and newspapers, she has also appeared on numerous podcasts and media platforms in Canada and around the world. I'm honored and grateful to have Professor Thompson on this podcast. And coming up next, we're going to be talking about critical race theory and black beauty culture. So let's do this. Professor Sherry Thompson, welcome to the Pan-African Experience. Thank you so much for inviting me. So um, I love uh, American politics. Uh, I know you're Canadian, but I love American politics just for the mere fact of the spectacle you know, but sometimes within that spectacle, uh, some issues will come out, such as critical race theory, which has been an issue in American politics, you know, over the past couple of months now. So, um, and I have to admit, I don't know what that means, 
until they started discussing it there. So I was wondering if you can give a background to what uh, critical race theory is. Yes, I mean, everybody is, the hysteria around critical race theory is actually funny. Academics were laughing because it just shows you how much people just don't know about the black experience in general because critical race theory as a concept is actually an outgrowth, I would say of the post civil rights era that really manifested itself in the 1980s. And it manifested itself in the 1980s through um, legal scholars. So black legal scholars. So a lot of people are familiar with Kimberly Crenshaw and intersectionality, but they forget that she's a legal scholar. <laughs> and she so and she wasn't the only person to be grappling with the, this concept of intersectionality, but she wrote a groundbreaking article on the topic and kind of became most associated. So in the 1980s, you had a series of um, African-American legal scholars who started to realize that in the post-civil rights era, what had happened is that while the protests moved off the streets, so the Martin Luther King era, the black and white era of photography and TV news, what happened is that all that they were fighting for in terms of changing laws then got operationalized in the laws. So the laws that were passed then in the lower courts, especially, so not the Supreme Court, but the lower courts in the U.S. became anti-Black in a more draconian way. And so they then started to say that in order to understand race, you have to understand the legal apparatus that becomes operationalized, not just in the legal fields, but in all institutions, in education. The prison industrial complex is also coming out of this same awareness that black men in particular are not more criminal. They don't, they're not more criminal minded. They're actually being targeted by a system that is built to criminalize black bodies. Right. So that's what critical race theory is where it's coming from. And that's the reason it tends to almost exclusively be taught in law schools. Like not I, I went to grad school. I didn't learn anything about CRT in grad school. I just stumbled upon the literature in what I was doing because it's typically something that is taught to lawyers to understand structures because the theory is related to a structure structural issues why it's been taken up in, you know, cultural criticism, um, feminism, and all the other kind of disciplines is because it does a really good job explaining, like taking us out of the individual actor and understanding that they're just a manifestation of a, the structure of racism <laughs> that is found almost um, sort of the, the gleaming light of it is really made visible in the legal field so just just do a scan of case laws and just read some legal decisions of the last 40 years and it, it becomes clear that there are that critical race theory is the only way that you can read some of those decisions yeah what, what fascinates me is the prison industry in america where most people know exactly what's happening they say uh, even uh, michael jordan invested in it a lot of people are investing in it but people know what's going on but nothing is being done it seems like an uh, open secret but yet, nobody's trying to take action to, you know, uh, address this. Yeah, I mean, but why would you take action on something that's so profitable? <laughs> you know, black bodies have been profitable to Western capitalism for 400 years. It's just a fact. 
And so the prison industrial complex that is really, again, operationalized since around the late, the Nixon era is when it really started and the war on crime. And then in the 80s, if you're old enough, the war on drugs was like the, the next war that had to be raged. And what a coincidence that war was raged in black communities. <laughs> and here we are, ironically, in the 21st century. And where is the opioid crisis? The opioid crisis is in white communities. And now they're calling it an epidemic. Yeah. <laughs> but 40 years ago, it was a war <laughs> because the war was against crack that was yeah. in black communities. So critical race theory will get you to understand that that the, the way the culture responds differently to the same crisis is part of the sickness of racism because the crises are actually the same, right? In the 1980s, when the quote unquote crack academic was ra ravaging inner city communities that were predominantly black. And why were those inner cities predominantly black? Because of white flight in the late 50s and 60s to the suburbs, which became predominantly white. And now 40 years later, where is the opioid crisis most acute in the white suburbs that are primarily, right? That That is the direct result of the sort of the redlining and the racist real estate policies of the 30s, 40s, and 50s. So critical race says, step back, racism explains everything. So it, it even it's, explains yeah. white realities. Okay, so is it geared, is it geared towards white students? That's what I was wondering. Is it geared toward white students? I think the reason why white students or white parents say they don't want their children to learn those theories yeah. is because it's going to require you to examine your personal life, <laughs> right? It's going to require you to say, oh, yeah, why do I live in this neighborhood and all my neighbors are white? Why, when I go into my high school, the Black students are basically bussing in for the last 40 years? It, it means you're going to question your reality. And one of the things about, and I think if you're familiar with James Baldwin, what I love about his Oh, my writing, one of my favorite. Uh, yeah. yeah, because his writing was always trying to say, look at yourself. White America, it's not my job. Like, I, I'm not actually here to teach you anything. Just do some reflection on the way things are and how we got here, and, and you'll see. And so critical race theory kind of, requires you to do that. And that will make a lot of parents and students who don't want to do that very uncomfortable. Well, do you think the teachers are equipped? Because this is quite uh, a complex theory. Do you think the teachers are equipped to actually teach this? Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> and not not at the, like, this is why, this is why you go to university. This is why you go to post-secondary because you just don't have the time kindergarten to grade 12 and at least in in the north america the way school is set up you don't have the time to get into a depth of a lot of things the curriculum is kind of set so if for example critical race theory you want to make this part of the curriculum that's not really up for a teacher to necessarily decide that's for the school the school board yeah and it goes up the, the structure of education to really decide what's important for for children to learn. And I think what we're seeing in the US is that once it gets to the school board and the school district conversation, they shut that right down. <laughs> and then they make it about the individual teacher 
who's choosing this radical theory, as opposed to taking a holistic approach and rethinking education as a whole. Like that's actually what, I think that's why this concept is coming up. It's saying, can we rethink education in general and not make it about some rogue teacher who's trying to indoctrinate the kids <laughs> or make the white kids hate themselves? <laughs> it, it's just an absurd argument. And I think, um, you know, I recently someone said this and it's true. One of the things that white supremacy does is that it flattens all nuance and it makes a, a balanced conversation completely impossible. Instead, it's 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 us against them. Okay, what I noticed, and I started to notice this during uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and the protest, and even now, whenever you ha you want to talk about race, you know, with a white person, not all white people, obviously, but they, they, there's element of guilt. Oh, you know, I didn't do anything, but that's not really the point. <laughs> you know, so can you can you elaborate on that? The <laughs> yes, white exactly. guilt. And it's like, well, because it's not true. Of course you did something. <laughs> <laughs> the question is, do you want to admit it to yourself? Of course you did. Maybe in 1975, you went to the high school and you saw a black person being called the N-word and you went on to your school, your class. Of course you did. So we're dealing with white silence, right? There's a pervasive culture of silence, of seeing injustices and just not saying anything. And then taking that as, well, I didn't do it. You know, I, it wasn't me. But silence is what led to all the atrocities that we've seen historically in the world. It's because of a pervasive silence why they were allowed to happen. So I think at the same time, one of the things that white supremacy also does is that it, it, it sort of imparts on white people to take everything as a personal individual attack yeah <laughs> right so it's not about the culture it's not about structures it's not about system it's like oh you're calling me racist it's like oh god it's like it's not just about you boo <laughs> like there's a bigger conversation like take yourself out of the conversation and step back sometimes it's really help healthy to take a bird's eye view and what i started doing to my students uh the last 18 months, two years, is that I just ask them, how do you think things are going? Like, let's just take, there's no racism. Do you think things are going well? <laughs> or do you see some areas for improvement? And resoundingly, the students are like, yeah, it's not going well at all. <laughs> like things are not good. Like, and they go through the list of stuff. And then it's like, so then how do you propose that we change them? And the only way that we're gonna change them, and this is true of any culture, is for the dominant culture to start to make the changes. We can, black people have been speaking and protesting for centuries. You know, it, at the end of the day, the dominant culture has to literally have that moment of reckoning to say, you know what, I think what my dad or my, my mother did, why should I re repeat what they've done? Instead, I need to do something different. And I think that's a big ask because what it also means is that the younger white person is going to risk alienation with their own family. And why would you take that risk for black people? <laughs> like alienating yourself from your own group because you wanna help black people out. A lot of people are not gonna do it. Some people will. There are some white allies that really are. They see the truth and they wanna be part of the change. Others, to be honest, they just wanna be comfortable in their lives and they just don't, they don't see 
it as a big concern for them personally, even as publicly they express kind of solidarity, right? <laughs> like yeah. they'll say, they'll say, I really empathize with black people, but, but, <laughs> you know, I didn't do anything. Yeah. That's what I've heard a lot. Or they say, or they say my family struggled when I was growing up, you know, we, we were, we were lower class or working class and we didn't have money. And I'm like, why, why is everything about money? Like, I, I think the conversation is a little deeper than just like what's in your bank account, you know, like, and, and, and that, that's a hard conversation. You mentioned, uh, you know, a scenario where a white person, uh, you know, maybe saw someone calling someone an N word and things like that. So I just, it just occurred to me because uh, the, my previous interview, I asked, was your feeling or your thought on the N-word? Because personally, as an African, you know, I was born in Nigeria, I grew up in Nigeria, I came here for higher education and, and so forth. And the N-word is not something that was in my vocabulary, you know, uh, growing up. Now, things have changed in Africa where people are using it quite a lot, which I find yeah. strange, you know. Yeah. So I don't use that word, not out of uh, moral superiority or you know that I'm better than anyone, but just the fact that it's inorganic to me to use it is, you know. Yeah. So, what do you think about that word, the, the, the N word? Yeah, I mean, I've spoken um, publicly about this before. I just think it's really important to understand language, and 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 that particular word is a very negative, toxic word. It actually doesn't matter who's using it, if it's an ER or an, an, a, a GGA at the end, like however you spell it. It's just a toxic word. And I think one of the things that's happened, and I can understand now why it's sort of spreading across, like, especially like um, West African countries and like even South African countries and East Africa in particular, is because of the exportation of American culture, of, of especially hip hop and like youth culture, where, you know, 40 years ago, that culture probably wouldn't have landed in Nigeria the way that it does now where it's just kind of like everywhere. And also you see a lot of the, the collaborations with African-American artists and like African artists, like a lot more, I would say the last 10 years. So there's this sense of the cultures kind of blending, but let's not blend them because they're not the same. And the issue with the N word is that it's coming, again, it's coming out of uh, sort of black pain, right? And, and, and the, the era of Jim Crow segregation. So in the era of Jim Crow segregation, you know, you were called that name out of hatred. <laughs> and then on a sort of colloquial level, you sort of had in it, this is even going back to the days of slavery, where you had African-American men in particular calling other African-American men that, that name as well to kind of position them as a certain type of person, right? And, and so it takes up a, an in-group, out-group, meaning so the word has a has a dual meaning it really does it's not just the way you say it or spell it it has a dual meaning so then you go through the decades what many people don't realize that it was really in the 60s with the sort of spoken word um conscious poet of the 60s that reintroduced that word to the performative arts so that's pre-hip-hop and then going through the 70s and sort of the soul culture of the 70s, it was kind of like, yeah, it was a, it became a colloquial. They reclaimed it. They said, okay, we're going to use this to make a commentary about Black life in America. But on the same level, 
you know, if you're my brother, you're also my N word, <laughs> you know, like they just kind of reclaimed it. And it's really through hip hop culture that we have the commercialization of the word. And so that's where it starts to take on a different power because now it's like, okay, record company is basically using you to produce this music. So you could say N word, N word for three minutes in a song and who's buying this music again, little white kids who live in the suburbs who don't know black people. And so now it takes on a power dynamic that is toxic. I have to and say, I yeah, uh, I have to say that I sort of understand, you know, because when I first came here, or when I started to become aware of American culture, the argument that was being made in the black community is, you know, taking control of that word, you know, because so I'm sympathetic to that. So uh, I support the right for any black person to use that word, not just not white people, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. But so, so the, the idea that you can coin a word, you know, for me, and then dictate to me how to use it, you know. So, you know, the black community have managed to transform this word in, in, a, in a poetic manner, in a way, you know, to, to utilize it in their own way. So I, I'm sympathetic to that uh, argument. Yeah, I mean, I think most black people are, <laughs> right? It, it, on a logical level, it makes sense. But when you don't understand power and you don't understand the sort of the dissemination of blackness as an aesthetic, as an archetype, then you don't understand why you should not use that word if you are a public facing person, because you don't understand the power. You're thinking I'm a creative, I'm just creating music and this and this. You're not understanding how you're actually socializing people. You're creating an ideology around what it means to be black and male. You're creating an image for yourself that is also now associated with something that's very toxic. And so I think that's what I'm saying. It's it's not necessarily on the interpersonal level. I guess I get why people do it interpersonally. I don't myself. I just, it's not in my consciousness to, to use that term because I know the history of it. Um, but as a public facing person, like an artist or a, a, or even like a, just a social media person to be like N-word, N-word, it's just like, <laughs> like as a black person, I think what's wrong with you? Can you not find any other words in your vocabulary to? <laughs> to explain, you know, to discuss your fellow black person. It just seems very at this era, here we are with hip hop 40 plus years in the game. It just feels a little retrograde to me to still be using it. Like, I think we need to move on. Okay. So in terms of the critical race theory, what, what is the outcome? What, what is the intended outcome? I know you said uh, like having white people to reflect, you know, look in the mirror, understand. But from a black student's perspective, because I, I made the case that, you know, during uh, um, Black History Month, you know, you see a lot of imagery of slavery, people in chains and things like that. So I'm saying, is this serving a positive purpose or is it reinforcing those trauma again to the kids or to the young people so i'm not sure whether it's doing uh what we think it's doing but see that's not critical race theory yeah don't use an, an abstract example but you you right? you tell me the right the right way yeah, to say so it. it's like and i think yeah i think what i 
listen, I'm part of a committee here where we're, we are planning Black History Month events. And what I made clear at the very beginning is that for me, Black History Month is not about me rehashing my history of enslavement by white people, okay? Or white or Europeans, I should be specific. Yeah, That's not what my celebration <laughs> is going to be. Instead, Black History Month is for me is about education, knowledge, and celebration of black achievements because we've done a lot that we just often don't get recognized for. So I think in that sense, it's also one of the things that critical race theory can help people to do is to stop seeing black people as victims and as less than. And through through that paternalistic lens of, oh, they were, oh, what happened to them? It was so sad. If you see me that way, how can we be sitting on, for example, in the same boardroom and you see me as your equal? You don't, right? So that narrative of always seeing us through a negative lens is really part of the problem. And I think what critical race theory is trying to do is to say, don't do that. Look at institutions, look at power, and also try to look at things intersectionally because you can be black and wealthy, right? If you're black, cisgendered, um, heterosexual, and and wealthy, man, your world is is a different world <laughs> than a lot of black people. You are able to navigate the world in a very different way. So you do have elements of privilege, in as much as you're black. So you 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 also bear that that you have to deal with. So I think that's really what CRT is saying is you can't take a blanket, um, a, a broad sweep and try to explain something as complex as race and racism when it's so interwoven into everything in the Western world, if not the entire world. There's really nowhere that a black person can go in this world. Even in the continent of Africa, you are going to experience certain things depending on where you go and whose who's space that you enter. Right. And I think that's what CRT is just trying to get people to realize. And I'm saying this is uh, more than 400 years of um, damage that <laughs> that can be, you know, that we're trying to undo. Because I always tell people, you know, even in Europe, yeah, I, I don't really care about uh, the average Joe on the streets, like the racism, or maybe I'm on a train and someone calls me an award. Yeah. I don't really care about that. What I'm more concerned about is institutional racism. What would the court do if I if I'm in front of uh the judge? What would the policeman do in my interaction with the policeman? You know, what would my employment the people employ? Because uh a charity organization did a research where they they you know go like CVs and put like different names, you know, African sounding name, Indian sounding names, and they realized that the white sounding name go more than yeah. nine times more callbacks, the same CV. Of course. So those are the things I'm more worried about. Uh, you know, and when I say this to some black people, they'll be like, oh, you're not really worried about if someone called you an N-word. I, I, don't, I don't really care. <laughs> you know, most yeah, and the reason you don't is because of power. You can't control what another person is going to say to you, right? But when you're working in a, if it's a work situation and they have all the control about your destiny in that organization, and they're having these thoughts about you. Yeah, that's what you really need to focus on. And that's what CRT says. It says, stop focusing on, oh, somebody called me this and somebody, I'm in a store and they don't want to serve me. 
leave the store. Don't give them your business and then tell everyone. Now we have power. You can go on social media and put that store on blast as being racist. <laughs> and if they don't change their policies, like use the power that you actually have in the 21st century. I'm I study history. And so I know history and I know and I can't even imagine to have been black before the Internet. Because you had no power. Literally, you had no voice. You could not create content like you're doing here. This is not an option. You are just stuck to sit with every single thing you're experiencing. You're sharing it with your community. If you're able and talented enough, maybe you can write a book, but there's no blog. You can't just like put something out there. You have to like get learned and learn the techniques of writing <laughs> and then maybe hope to get an agent or a publisher. Think about that life. Today, we don't realize the level of power that we have compared to say 50, 60 years ago when you were just stuck with all the hatred. And so for me, that's why I have so much respect for elders because I think about what they have lived through. <laughs> it's like, it's an experience that I don't even know, right? Because I, I always have an outlet. My entire adult life, because I'm, I'm a Gen X grown up with the internet, I have always had an outlet for my expression. And I never had to, there were no gatekeepers in the same way. So as soon as, you know, I had a thought and even today, think about the power, something happened to you. It's either really racist or hateful or whatever. Man, if you don't go back on your social media and drop that post, <laughs> right? And you've now, you now have an outlet to release that hate. A hundred years ago, you went home and you had to figure something out to absorb. I'll tell you, I'll tell you a story about an experience. I, you know, in my university, Robogoro University, they were doing a campaign uh, about um, sexual assault and things like that. And on the on campus, they have a lot of uh, marketing materials like images, and most of the images showed like a white woman in front and the black woman and the black guy behind. You know, and I completely understand this is not intentional. You know, so I had to write to the vice chancellor and say, this is quite shocking. If you see the picture, almost the way the, I know it's Photoshop, right? The way the black guy is almost like leaning, you know, in behind. Yeah, like he's like he's going to harm her. Yes. He's like the rapist. It's the it, rapist it's trope. Like, it's like saying, oh, this is what you need to look out for. Yep. You yes. know, so I had to write, and then I had to go there, and I, I spoke to them, and they had to remove that. You know, they realized it. You know, you know they, they said it was not intentional, which I understood, you know, because the society have taught some people that these are what you look out for. This is the image. Go ahead, please. And that's what I'm saying. That's what white supremacy does. It, it, it gets you an autopilot with, like, all the systems of oppression that you're not even aware of. <laughs> Right. And and then it takes us, the oppressed, to tell you. And then you're like, oh, OK, yeah, I never saw. But you, and you have to stop and think to yourself, how could you not? Like, it means that your consciousness is just so far away from mine. Like, I think what I've realized in my professional life, that often what we call anti-Black racism is actually a lack of consciousness. You're dealing with people who lack consciousness. That's just what I've learned. And so you have a consciousness gap where we can look at something and clearly see a nuance and see all the dynamic 
they look at it and they see a flattening. They just see one or two things. It's almost like if you, like when they do like neuro um, neurologists or uh, the brain people, I, I don't think they're neurologists. I can't remember what they are now, but the people who study the brain, yeah. it's like when you see, it's like showing something to someone that's very high sensation and you see all the brain lighting up. That's black people when there's something going on in the culture, okay? Yeah. Stuff, all the stuff. Then you go over and too many non-black people, there's just like one or two peck things moving around in there. They're just not making connections and they don't see it. So, you know, I I sort of know a little bit about Gandhi and thinking about that movement in India, like in the in the early 20th century. And so much of what Gandhi was trying to do was raise the consciousness of his people because he realized that's what's ailing us. It's not so much what they're doing to us. It's that we don't see it and we are not able to empower ourselves to do anything about it. And I think that's actually the work that I do. I'm not interested in, in helping white people. That's, see that's how I, that's how I found you because <laughs> yes. I, I don't want to put my energy on the, uh, that's it. I want to information, you know, knowledge is power. Information is key. So I want to be able to, you know, disseminate information that will empower, you know, people like me. And, uh, you know, and because these platforms uh, has been decentralized, you know, anyone can have a podcast with a microphone, uh, you know, or a mobile phone, which is really, really helpful. I want to talk about black beauty culture in general. Yep. I know your book uh, is with regards to Canada's uh, black beauty culture, you know, the roots, you were tracing the roots. And uh, I'm on a mission to encourage black women to stop uh, straightening their hair, relaxing their hair, or wearing a uh, weave. And I've been warned that this is a very dangerous mission. <laughs> so, <laughs> because but, but, so many elements, please, can you, uh, yeah, can you elaborate on that? Well, because that too is about consciousness. <laughs> I mean, everything is about your consciousness and your awareness and your ability to ask yourself, especially as it relates to beauty culture, um, to ask yourself, is this in my best interest in terms of my personhood, not in terms of dating, career, relationship, money, power, like all the, the stuff, the outward stuff that I could understand. So for example, there's a lot of women who wear a wig because they work in a certain place and they know that that's more acceptable because it's gonna, you know, it's just more acceptable. There's a lot of women who same thing, they wear weave because the standard of beauty says your hair better be long and straight and silky. And they know that that's going to give them a sort of an advantage in many areas, especially in relationships. Let's face it. A lot of women's hair choices. I don't know if you want to hear this, but they really are driven by men's interests. Men tend to like women who have long straight hair or at least straightened hair. That is a preference in heterosexual relationships that I have noticed and had to push back against in my entire life. For a lot of women, they acquiesce to that. And so they wanna please and be seen as beautiful. <clears throat> so there are a lot of constraints, right? And reasons. But when you scrape the surface of all those reasons that actually, as you get older, they're more justifications <laughs> than actual reasons. You have to ask yourself, is this in my best interest as a person? Is it in my best interest in terms of how I see myself, in terms of how I honor myself? 
in terms of health and all the other things. And of course, that's a very tricky conversation to have with someone whose consciousness is not there yet, right? Because self-care actually takes a lot of, you have to awaken. I don't want to get too deep. I feel like, you know, I'm getting a little bit. Please, like, please, please, please it, go ahead. Because, someone needs to hear this. Yeah, because some of this is a spiritual journey. And spiritual is not the same thing as religion, right? Because a lot of people who go to church, they weave in and relax and wear the wig. It has nothing to do with religion. I'm talking about a certain journey that we all have to take in life to figure out who we are and, and why we do the things that we do. And if you are able to live with yourself wearing a weave, knowing you're doing this because you want to keep a husband or you want to keep a man or you want to keep the job, if you're okay with that, then I come from the school of thought that I can't judge that person and, and tell them not to do that. Like, I can't tell you, okay, you're wrong. But what I can tell you is that over here, there's another way. <laughs> and oh, that yeah. other way isn't, that other way sort of um, has nothing to do with outward, um, the external is what I'm saying to you. It has everything to do yeah. with the internal. I was wondering, you said that uh, men like uh, straight hair. I, I was thinking that that's probably not the case for most people. I know. Is that like factually speaking? I mean, I think, I think. Because yeah, most I things, <laughs> most things that women do, obviously, this is coming from anecdote, right? Most things that women do, they they think they're doing it for men, and men like that. But men, primarily speaking, are not really interested in. You know, all the whatever the spectacle, the extras that comes yeah. with it. I mean, I think what I've learned is that men like you to just be real. <laughs> like, I don't think men typically like weaves. Like, I don't think that they, like, I just don't think that is something that men necessarily like. But if they're going to step out to some really posh, posh event and there's a lot of white people in there, I bet you they like the weave then. They probably don't mind it in that case. But behind closed doors, maybe not so much. I think, yes, I think it's not to say that this is driven by men saying things overtly to women. I do think a lot of this is our perception of what men would find attractive, right? It's on us. It's like what we are thinking because we're in a world just like you, just like the CRT conversation, just like we're in a, a world dominated by white images. We're also in a world dominated by white aesthetics straightened hair, um, thin nose, like all the stuff that you see. And it, but the weird thing in popular culture, increasingly you're seeing a lot of black women body parts, <laughs> right? Walking down the runway and you're like, okay, her lips look a lot bigger than they did last year, right? So everybody likes our parts. And I'm thinking of Kim Kardashian elk. They love the aesthetics of blackness. I don't know how they would want to be in black skin though. Like, I don't know if they want to absorb that, but they'll take the lips, they'll take the parts that they find attractive. Our fuller lips, our fuller derriere. Um, maybe they like the idea of some of them really like the, our hair is always black typically. So they like really dye their hair like a, like Kim Kardashian's hair is like midnight black, <laughs> like, right? And I think, so there's things that they like but the other stuff, they just leave that. I don't think Kim Kardashian's going to widen her nose anytime soon, right? So yeah. I think what ends up happening 
is that black women just feel a certain pressure to look a certain way. And it starts really young. It starts when you're a girl, it's a young child. It's not when you're 25 that it gets into your psyche because you also grew up, you went to school and you see how the beautiful girl at school gets treated. And she probably doesn't look like you. Well, the idea is who 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 defines beauty. So the, the, the struggle now is that you know most uh, you know Africans uh, you know both in the continent and in diaspora and black women in general grew up being fed images and stories that there is you know increasing the insecurities about their hair, their body, and, and overall yes. beauty. So they're trying to live up to this. You know they're trying to create some form of beauty based on Western femininity. Mm-hmm. You know, so that becomes who defines beauty. So what I find beautiful is not what someone else might find beautiful. So who makes the dominant beauty standards? Well, <laughs> like everything else, it's a combination of things, right? Every It's every image that you've ever seen in your entire life. It's film, it's television, it's advertising, it's social media, it's your friend group, it's your family, what you see mirrored out to you. It's kind of everything. That's why you can't really pinpoint a source to blame or a source to like credit. (laughs) It, It isn't really down to one source. And that's why the only common denominator in everything I just said is you. Like the power is with us to resist and to say no. Me, look, I wear my hair in dreads. I've worn this hairstyle now since 2007. I just made a decision. I just decided I'm out the dominant beauty culture. I'm leaving. <laughs> okay. And and I, I just did that. And so you have to be brave enough, courageous enough to do that and then to be okay with that choice. And I think that's what, again, back to what we were saying earlier, I'm all about self-empowerment, not about changing the world that we live in. Because I believe that if more people become fully conscious beings, fully self-empowered to make those courageous choices and decisions, eventually that energy is just going to trickle up and it will change the structure because they'll realize that the products aren't moving the way they used to. People aren't watching the content the way they used to. And they'll start to figure out that, oh, I guess now people want something else than what we've been giving them for hundreds of years. That's the, for me, change is always bottom up. It's the top down approach. We've tried that. And by what I mean by top down approach is that you just change a bunch of laws and you think, okay, we get a civil rights act, 1965. No one's going to hate black people now. That's just not how it works, right? And so I think as it relates to beauty, there's no one thing to blame. I have a theory which most people can consider controversial. I'm saying the best way to make uh, black women to embrace their hair or embrace uh, black beauty is to get white women influencers to start doing it. No, no, no. Because that that's when they will come out. No. That's when they will come out and say, "Oh, this is our this is our cornrows." You know, you're no. black fishing. Because I say no. To okay. That. Okay. Emphatic. I'm, that's an emphatic no. <laughs> and the reason is is because historically, white women have always understand this. Whereas black men, 
look at white women and they want to date them. Black women, we grew up with Becky. <laughs> okay. In gym class. Like we know, we know white women on a very different level, okay, than men know white women. And so for us, we've dealt with the teasing in the locker room, the 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 competitiveness in the classroom, the making little comments about our hair and our face. And it's not across the boards. I have white women friends. It's not about the individual. It's the fact of collectively, white women have been the bane of many black women's existence. <laughs> so we don't look to them for guidance. And I think back historically in the, the, the transatlantic slavery context, most people don't realize that when the, the, when, when the white plantation owner was out of the house, who do you think he left in charge of the slaves? <laughs> He left the misses. So white women are just as invested and implicated in structures of racism as white men are. The only difference why we don't think that is because white women have benefited from policies that have singled out gender as sort of affirmative action needs. So they've benefited from those policies based on gender, while racialized communities are the ones that are still basically left behind. So exponentially, if you look at the data since 1980 of white women's uh, success at every levels of the corporate world in education, in healthcare, just look at their progress and then trace it the other metric, use race as the other metric. And you'll see exponentially, they outpace every other group, including Black, Latinx, South Asian, and Asian women. So it's kind of like, no, I'm not looking to you because you're not my, you're not going to tell me what I need to do in terms of aesthetics. Yeah, I wanted For to say, me, yeah, I wanted to say, sorry, I wanted to say, I said that in jest because whenever i've seen black women claim their blackness has always been when there's a white person you know appropriating the culture yeah we have to because that's when we really have to we have to say no 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 because if we don't speak out it'll become normal it'll just be normal normalized and then suddenly if people haven't if we didn't speak out against kim k you know how many things kim k would be trying to claim that she invented <laughs> be a long list of things that she would say, oh, I was the first to do this. And it's like, no, 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 no. But that's, again, why I thank this era. Because in this era, we have a response. You know, okay. think about Josephine Baker. I always like to say, talk about, and it's funny because France suddenly now is like, Josephine, she's one of us. It's like, oh my gosh. <laughs> if, if Josephine could rise from the dead, I just wonder <laughs> what she would say right now. But I go back to Josephine Baker in the 1930s. We don't realize this. In the 1930s, Josephine Baker became really well known, yes, for her performances and the banana outfit, but it was also her hairstyle. She in, kind of made that hairstyle. It's called a Marcel wave. She made it popular. If the white beauty culture industry didn't start marketing that same hairstyle for white blonde women, they basically just like usurped the style. So today in the consciousness, when people, historians talk about the Marcel wave, they don't mention Josephine Baker as basically inventing that style. Instead, they focus on all the Vogue covers 
and sort of the white beauty culture industry. So there's a long-standing history of white appropriation of black women's hairstyles and just aesthetics in general. And I think that that is just such a problem that that just seems to keep getting worse. Like I actually heard an interview, or I think my sister was telling me an interview that Sandra Bullock <laughs> Sandra Bullock gave recently. Um, who I actually like Sandra Bullock, but she was talking about how she's adopted, I guess she adopted some black children. So she has black children and she was saying like, oh, as they're growing up, you know, I wish I was black because I feel like then I would be able to relate to them more. And what I said to my sister was, well, why didn't she just adopt some white children? And then she wouldn't have that issue. (laughs) (laughs) She wouldn't have had that issue of having to feel like she needs to become them to, to relate to them. And again, it speaks to even as you love people like you can love people and kind of dehumanize them at the same time because what does race have to do with parenting children it's a very strange thing that she said and i don't think she meant it at the time like she was aware but that just that comment doesn't make any kind of sense i i think about the times that i had white friends growing up i never thought to myself gosh i wish i was white so i could really relate to these people better I never, I never had that thought, right? And so yeah. if you have that thought, I think you have some work that you need to do. Okay, with the same logic of black women trying to claim their, you know, their black beauty, if a white woman is trying to appropriate it. So someone can make an argument that, you know, uh, black women straightening their hair or trying to, you know, put on the weave uh, uh, is cultural appropriation. What do you, what do you say? What do you think about that? Oh yeah, I've heard that argument before. And again, I think that argument is devoid of power. If we didn't live in a world where, believe it or not, there are a lot of um, institutions, some universities, some uh, schools, like for kids, a lot of employers actually have code of conduct policies that sort of say certain hairstyles are banned. (laughs) And a lot of those hairstyles are natural hairstyles. Like there are in the United States, there are actually policies on the books that say you cannot be a teacher at this school and wear your hair in dreads. Dreads are banned. So what are you going to do? So the imperative then becomes, well, I guess I have to wear this in order to work (laughs) at this particular school. So I think that's what people are not understanding. This is where CRT still comes in because that's a policy structural issue that gets manifested as an individual action. And so the way our world works because of media culture, media culture always wants us to think about the individual story. And they just like zero in on that one person. And it's like, no, this is a structural issue that actually relates to the people who are in power. And guess what? 400, 500 years of of the Western world's domination, who is still in power? It's still white men at the head of most organizations. That's just a historical fact. That's not me being racial. It's just, to me, I always say to people, go and do your own research. Look at the board of directors of every major company and every major university. By and large, they will be 95% white and probably about 80% male. So who has the power to change? The situation me as an individual or those people who are still controlling everything and deciding everything 
Yeah, you know, I just uh, I listened to an interview by a black uh, woman in the UK here for BBC. I don't want to name her, but she was interviewing a, a black beauty product manufacturer, trying to say, "Oh, what race are you? Are you? You know, what race are you?" In terms of, uh, I'm not sure if she's trying to infer that you have to be black to manufacture black product. Mm. And then I'm there thinking, this is someone that's quite experienced, even more experienced than myself. You're focusing on the wrong uh, issue. You should be speaking to your peers, should be speaking to black women. You know, I mean, if someone has saw an opportunity to make money and there's demand, that's the point of it, demand and supply. There's demand for it and it's trying to meet those demands. And you cannot well, yes. shame that person for providing product for people that are requesting the product. Well, this is it. That's why I always say to black women, it's like, don't you understand your weave is, is probably made, sold and distributed by someone who's from Korea. Koreans actually dominate the hair weave industry. That's their business. And yet we're their number one customer. <laughs> like, what are you going to do? You're going to hate on Koreans because they saw a market that they could get into. Stop giving them the market. To me, don't hate Koreans. Just stop giving them the market then where's the business? The business will dry up, right? And I think that's the consciousness that I'm talking about. It's like, you can't blame any individual for wanting to be a business person and wanting to see, well, where's, like you said, where's the demand? And most people know in black communities, it doesn't matter where you are around the world, black women and, and increasingly many black men are hair care product dependent, meaning, it's a recession-proof industry. <laughs> no matter what, we need our hair oils. No matter what, we need our weave. No matter what, we need to relax our hair. So it doesn't matter what's going on in the economy. Those products, sales only ever go up. <laughs> they don't go down unless people raise their consciousness and they stop giving them their money. That's the only reason sales start going down. For example, over the last 15, 20 years, there's been a lot more dermatological research that has come out about the negative effects of hair relaxers on the scalp, alopecia, and also a connection between chemical relaxers and, and uterine fibroids. Because of that, over the last 15 years, relaxer sales have declined. Wow. They, they really have. They've gone down compared to 15 years before. But look what it took. <laughs> look at the medical research that it took and the evidence-based research that it took to change those behaviors. So consumer behaviors are very difficult to change, but they usually change when there's a health component, not an economic component. So for example, on a unit basis, if chemical relaxers were to go up in price by a certain amount of people would still buy them. They would not stop buying them, right? It's only when you know that this could be harmful to your health that you pause. And I just think black people, again, consciousness, <laughs> why does it take such news to get you to change your behaviors? Yeah, and the, the same, this is not just in uh, black American culture, this is the same in Africa. <laughs> Almost identical, you know, the, yeah. the hair thing, the weave. And they have to, you know, if it's quite close to me, you know, close to, close to me, because a lot of people close to me, and uh, wearing the weave, the Brazilian hair is, is a popular one that looks like, a, yep, you know, yep. so. And I, I'm constantly saying, 
just where I'm natural hair, there's so many excuses I'm hearing. Oh, it, it takes, uh, you know, it, it, to make the natural hair, it takes long, uh, so much process. I'm like, I've seen you with that weave, trying to prepare that weave for like more than 30 minutes. So <laughs> I'm not quite, sure. I'm not quite yeah. sure if it's time, time sensitive. No, you know? but it's also, you know, I go back, I, yes, I'm, I live in Canada and I've grown up in North America, but, you know, when I was maybe in the 80s and 90s, I, I started to see a lot of film, like a lot of like African films, like from the, like the 60s and 70s. So I remember seeing like, I remember seeing a concert, like a filmed concert of Fela, Fela Kuti in like 1970 or 71. And I just was like amazed at like all the performers on stage, everyone in the audience, natural hair. <laughs> everyone had their own hair and looking so beautiful. And then here we are 50 years later and those same people probably weave or relax and, and do all the stuff. And it's like, I don't understand it. it what happened? Like you almost want to say, and I'll tell you, I say I don't understand and what happened, but I do understand what happened. And it's called consumerism. It's called global capitalism. And it's called the the global dissemination of an aesthetic that is rooted in African Americanness. So that's why when you said at the beginning about the continent sort of changing and people's language are changing, that has a lot to do with the exportation of exportation of American culture african-american culture and so now it's like what does it mean to be african i'm sure a lot of people in africa are, are asking that question like what are who are we we're changing we it's like we don't know who we are anymore and i think that you know that's the same issue in canada too where you know i hear sometimes i hear youth like young people the way they talk and i'm like did you grow up in Detroit or something? Like, <laughs> you don't really sound like a Canadian anymore. Like, what is going on? Mm. And again, it's it's the culture that's just being consumed. So, you know, what we really need to do is have, uh, again, consciousness, much more of a, of a consciousness around what capitalism actually is. You know, capitalism isn't just an economic exchange it's also requires a lot of soft power and that symbolic ideological exchange that I actually think is more powerful than the economic component. Can you elaborate on that, please? The, 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 the symbolic uh, ideological exchange. So for example, the dissemination of consumer products, especially consumer products, media products from the US and from the UK, a lot of news products so you get a lot of news i'm sure a lot of people in africa watch bbc right that's their main go-to they think that's just information but what that actually is it's a form of soft power in that it gets you to on an ideological level see that importation as being better more advanced more um sort of who you want to be than your own culture so you actually start to feel as if your own culture is is backwards, it's negative, it, it doesn't produce anything, there's nothing interesting here. And you just start to literally internalize a kind of self-hatred about where you live and your people. And your way to kind of reconcile that is to adopt the dominant aesthetic of that source that's being pumped to, in, in you, literally. That's very powerful because you'll never be able to pinpoint where it started. 
Like, was it was yeah. it, what program was it or what TV show or what film did you think you'll never know? Right. And how do you unpack it and how do you dismantle it? Whereas yeah. an economic system can easily be dismantled. <laughs> it's not difficult. Yeah. And you mentioned Felakuti and Felakuti is one of my favorite, one of my, you know, favorite uh, musicians uh, in Africa. And he actually studied here in the UK, you know, music. Mm -hmm. And uh, I always say there's two things that happens to Africans when they come to Europe. It's either they become more appreciative of their culture and embrace it more, or they go the opposite way. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. So, uh, so so someone like Fela Kuti, he became more appreciative of his culture and he stopped wearing any Western clothes. Sometimes he wear just pants on stage, you know, just, yeah. you know. <laughs> so, so, and the... He is worshiping uh, the traditional gods. You know, he has his own shrine, Fela Shrine, where if he wakes up in the morning, so he he, he understands the, the the colonial element of uh, Christianity or religion with regards to Africa. So he, he is someone that is very, very aware in terms of music, and his music is very conscious, you know, compared to, you know, um, what's happening in most in Africa and most in most places. So Felakut is is a unique uh, is a unique individual. So I wanted to talk about color uh, uh, skin lightening as well because this is part of the overall issue. And uh, Nigeria, we are leading in this area, you know, because uh, data collected by World Health Organization determined that forty percent uh, African women regularly use. Uh, skin lightening creams and you know whatever and the seven seven percent from nigeria in terms of cons consumption you know purchasing trend 77 percent so i was just wondering through your research whether because i keep saying uh maybe there's a, a transatlantic slave to this is there like a correlation to this because yeah. can you talk about that please Skin lighting is interesting because you see the same really off the charts use numbers in India, in Pakistan, in in Korea, in in Japan, in in Asia, in across Asia, and it's like okay, well this is weird because their skin is already light. So what are they even? So and what it is because what I've realized in studying skin lightening. But it's actually not about trying to be white. This is what I've realized. I think we think that this person, they want to be white and that's why they're doing it. It's actually has more to do with just a deep, profound self-hatred, <laughs> which is more complicated to weed out. So you don't want to be white. You just really hate yourself on a profound level that you might be conscious of and you might actually not be conscious of. Because sometimes people say, well, how could you not be conscious of hating yourself? It's very simple. The negative self-talk. A lot of people have a lot of negative self-talk, but they wouldn't describe themselves as, as, as maybe hating themselves. They just get up in the morning and say, oh, my skin is too dark, or oh, I hate my nose, or I hate my lips. Right. They just I've met these people. You're out at a dinner with these people and they're just like telling you all this stuff. And you're thinking, God, that's very negative. <laughs> like, are you aware that you have these like really negative thoughts about yourself? And I think that's what's driving. That's why that's also why skin lightening is exponentially just sales going up and recession proof because ain't nobody trying to be white. That's not their desire. They just really hate who they are. 
and they want to be something else. And so this is the reason why, again, this whole conversation has going back to consciousness. Because when you raise your consciousness, you will realize that one of the most beautiful things in this world truly is diversity in every sense of the world, in the word diversity of color, diversity of tone, of texture. I always think about fashion because I also write a lot about fashion. And it's like, think about if you got up and you wore the same texture, same color, same cut clothing every single day of your life. There's a reason we call it prison. (laughs) And they give the prisoners the same uniform because it's a stripping away of your individuality and it's a stripping away of your choice and it's a, just a stripping away of your individual power. And so when I, to me, skin bleaching kind of speaks to that, that you're actually stripping away your individuality, your power, your presence in the world. You're literally stripping it away so you can look like everyone else. How could you interpret that other than a deep, profound self-hatred? I mean, W.E.B. Du Bois, writing at the turn of the 20th century, The Soul of Black Folks. If anyone listening has never read that book, please read it. What it was this? What what did he call the title? Please, it's called "The Soul of Black Folks." Okay. W. E. B. Du Bois. I think it was published in 1901, but it was written around like 18. He started writing that I think like 1880, 98, 99. So it's it it's the cusp. It it, it marks the 20th century and the 19th century. That book is so amazing because everything he says in that book is still a problem today. (laughs) It's like he was seeing the future and the present at the same time. And one of the things that Du Bois, who is an African-American intellectual, yes, born of a sort of privilege. Again, he was born of privilege. His parents were wealthy for Black people at the time. He's one of the first people, I think, if not the first to attend Harvard. Like this is a highly educated elite black person writing at the 20 the turn of the 20th century and his whole that whole book is about consciousness that whole book is about not necessarily what the quote-unquote white world is doing to the black world it's what the black world needs to do to combat the white world it's what we need to do it's the level that we need to raise our consciousness to and so much of beauty culture is really about that and about this realization that The only reason you're bleaching, it's not because you want to look white. It's because you hate looking black. And unless you unless you can interrogate that, you're just going to keep doing the the practice. Yeah, I've always said that it it all starts from within and the 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 pop culture leaders, you know, I, I always say capitalism. You know, are using like maybe the hip hop artists to market products, so they understand their power. Yes. You know, so I was wondering why are they not using this power to, to uh, you know, uh, put black beauty on a pedestal? Because when I see music videos, all I see is uh, is either like white women or light skinned uh, uh, black women. And this is starting to become a trend in African music video. If someone that is living in Nigeria and Lagos that hasn't been in Europe will try to find a, a white holiday maker or something, oh, can you come and be in the video? Just to have a white person in the video. And when I see this, it makes me sad. I'm like, 
Why don't you just show me your environment? Show me people that you grew up with. You didn't grow up with Becky. <laughs> no. You grew up with Amaka and, you know, Chino. So why don't you, sh you know, show them in your video? Well, yeah. they're probably thinking about the global marketplace again and the global distribution of that product. That's why. Because Black, for many people, white is what circulates. Anything not white, it's it's local. <laughs> you know, keep that local. That's community-based. And it's about changing that narrative. And I think, you know, one of the things about this conversation that is kind of difficult is because you know, we're all individuals at the end of the day. In as much as we identify with communities, we're individuals who have our own individual story, right? And so much of your self-care practices has a lot to do with your childhood and what was modeled for you. And I think a lot of um, Black youth growing up, unfortunately, their parents lacked consciousness and what was modeled for them, for them was a lot of what they needed to change about themselves. So the story that they got growing up is, okay, when you go to school, you have to do this to fit in. When you get a job, you're going to have to, you can't wear your hair like that to work. Are you crazy? You better change this, right? Oh, you're going on a date. You can't dress like that. You better dress like this. There's a constant like need to modify who you are. Like black people are rarely just accepted for who we are. Even in our own families, there's a somebody telling you in your ear, like you're not going to get a job if you look like that. Or um, say you want to be a model. Well, the modeling world doesn't like dark skinned women. So I don't know how you're going to get into that field. And you're like, there's the beginning of, I guess I better bleach my skin. So we wonder where these things come from. It's not always external. It's not always media culture. Oftentimes, again, it's the self-hatred in our own communities that is projected onto you at a very pivotal age in your life. And of course, you're going to listen to your community, right? You're going to say, oh, okay, I guess that's good advice I'm getting. Often, and then 20 years later, you can reflect on that advice and all the things you've had to undo and unlearn <laughs> since you got that advice. And, and so it's really about getting to young people at that pivotal age before they have their children and they just pass on all their junk. They just pass it on to their kids without interrogating themselves and, and being conscious, consciously aware of what they're doing as they're raising their kids. Yeah, you mentioned people at work and... Uh... And I always see this meme where, uh, you know, it's funny, but then again, it's sad and true because I always see this meme where, I don't know if you've seen it, maybe on Instagram or TikTok, where people will now uh, come out from work and in their car and I will say, oh, now I can be myself. They remove their, their <laughs> wave and, you know, it's funny. But at the same time, so that shows that they had to conform in this yeah. environment. You know, they had to put up uh, a, a different almost being a different person and now yeah, after the walk imagine yeah. all day long all day long <laughs> like hours and hours yeah it's just exhausting it's no wonder it's no wonder when black women get cancer we die <laughs> we don't recover it's no wonder our life expectancy is lower than other groups like what i'm saying to you is that we want to look pinpoint a external blame for that and say so it was these companies and this no honey it's you 
you actually don't have to do that right that meme is 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 funny because it's also a window into the psyche exactly <laughs> where it's like you're doing it to yourself you're in the car by yourself like nobody's there behind you saying oh you better do that you're choosing to do that nobody's forcing you so that's why it's like you know one of the things that i can't remember who this was but there was there was someone a white male who had a profound understanding of the power of enslavement they understood that enslavement while we take up this idea of enslavement and we get stuck on the body so we look at the corporal response of enslavement that you're in, in bondage essentially to another person they tell you what to do you have to work you're not getting paid this person understood no 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 that's small fry as we would say in the caribbean the big fry is to get them to enslave themselves is to leave that in their psyche so that when I'm not uh, when I'm not at the plantation, they'll still go out to the field dutifully <laughs> and do the work. I don't even have to be there. They're just know to do it. And when the day is done, they'll know to go right back to their little cabin and not say a word. So mind control, they understood, was the most powerful thing, not the physical control of people's bodies and people's time. And so if you don't free your mind, and you don't start to question the autopilot that you're on, then you, you're actually free, but you're actually still a slave. You're a slave to systems and structures, not necessarily an individual person. And I think that's why you see so much bleaching in the brown and black world, <laughs> right? That's the reason, because there's such profound oppression in those parts of the world not individual right there's always going to be a lot of individuals doing very well you know people in the western world have this view of africa that everybody's poor and and starving and and, and living in huts it's like no there are major urban centers in many african countries that are global leaders in many things people are living they're not even they're not rich they're wealthy Okay. They have compounds okay, with many cars and drivers and they're jet setting to all these places in Europe and Asia, right? So you can't get boggled down on the collective, whatever that is. It starts with you. And you, you mentioned uh, about childhood, which uh, struck a chord uh, with me because most of these uh, uh, deep-seated issues if i can call it issues in you know and uh, you know i have a seven-year-old uh boy and when he was maybe two when i started buying books and you know reading books for him and he can be able to like read on his own most of the books at that early age was like maybe pictures you know this is a queen you know king oh, yeah, yeah, this yeah. this and most of these pictures have like white people white kids you know princess yep. this and I did something that my my son's uh, mom was like, oh my God, you're so extra, right? I went, because I couldn't find a, a black, now there, there are more on the market now. I couldn't find a book that has like black characters in it. So I went on the internet and I Googled like uh, black women or black girls. When they say, where they wrote princess and they're blonde, girl white girl i caught had a cutout of a black girl african girl with like african hair 
and put it there. You know? <laughs> and then come out, uh, she was like, oh, okay. So, but, and I've noticed that helped uh, quite a lot to, to give him perspective because if you're constantly seeing princess or this is what the picture of a princess looks like, you know, people don't understand what damage that causes, you know, oh, whether, so whoever wrote, whether whoever wrote the book is doing it intentionally or not, it's not really my business, but my responsibility is for my son to understand that this is not how the only way a princess looks, you know, princess can be, have blonde hair, but princess can also have Afro. Well, that's it. It's, it's about it. Literally it's about respecting the difference in the world. Like I was saying earlier, it's, you know, what white supremacy also does is that it says, you know, white is right in everything. <laughs> you invented everything. You're the, 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 lo- the focus of everything, right? Everything is spawned from you. And it's like, no, if you go back over history, pretty much everything has probably been invented in collaboration with a white person and another racialized group. <laughs> everything. Yeah. If you didn't, right? If they didn't have a driver who was black, if they didn't have an assistant who might have been like South Asian or Asian or black or or native, uh, an indigenous person, every single thing. But then they took the credit, right? <laughs> like I always, I always laugh when I think about like Alexander Graham Bell, who is Canadian, who is given the esteemed um, designation of having created the telephone. When you research Alexander Graham Bell, what a coincidence that before they developed the telephone, they were traveling extensively in Africa. Wow. I wonder what I wonder what they were doing there. Extensively meeting all kinds of people. Suddenly they come back to North America and suddenly a stroke of genius, they invented the telephone by themselves in a laboratory. <laughs> So again, I don't have facts. I don't have proof of anything. All I'm saying to you is that in my adult life, having done a lot of work to create things like Beauty in a Box, I take the credit, but that's a collaborative project. So why is it when we go back in history, we credit, you know, Thomas Edison invented the light bulb. Did he really do that work on his own? Like in history, we have decided that there's these white inventors. But in the contemporary world, we understand nothing gets invented in isolation. Everything is a collaboration. So what I'm saying to you is that to raise your consciousness is to question that narrative of the white male inventor from the 19th century who was credited with everything. That that in itself is a myth. It's just not possible. (laughs) If we think about the, the modern world, and the things that we create now, because everything is visible and out in the open, we know, for example, Steve Jobs is not creating no iPhone. He didn't create that on his own. They did a movie about it. <laughs> it's a team, people, team. But somehow Thomas Edison was like in a laboratory by himself, creating the light bulb that has fundamentally changed the world. So that's what I'm saying. Again, full circle, CRT would have you question that. And to look at structures of power and even the narrative of the inventor and who gets credited with claiming that they've invented things, 99% of inventors are white and male. What a coincidence. Doesn't that seem odd? (laughs) (laughs) 
like to me, it's like, just, just ask yourself, does that make sense to you? And if you say it does make sense to you, you're, you're, you're a white supremacist. (laughs) You're, you have to be racist because on a logical level, it's not literally statistically possible for that to make sense. Especially since all of these inventors were coming up in a time where there were so many interactions that they were having with non-white people. Again, as a person who studies history, the distance between the, 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 the really wealthy person in the 19th century and the laborer, they were actually much closer than they are today. Because of the way, you know, sort of industrial manufacturing was, it's like, chances are that person was walking the floors and like actually was meeting the people. So you had much more of a chance. And also the labor, uh, the stratification of labor was such that all of those people probably had a black driver, probably had black maids, right? Because we were resigned to those laboring positions. You don't think there was any conversations that they had together? Like Thomas Edison wasn't like, you know, I'm working on this thing, uh, you know, Ben, Uncle Ben, come and look, what, what, are, you, what are your thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> you don't think like it's not realistic for us to not think that there wasn't any kind of interaction. And yet we never get the credit for anything. And so the system of reward is what, again, coming out of capitalism has tended to focus on white achievements almost exclusively. It's literally the last 30, 40 years that the others, including Black people, have said, hold on a second, I think this system of reward needs to be changed. Because I think it's actually ignoring a whole swath of people. So to your point, you said over the last few years, you've noticed that there's now more Black children's books with Black characters. That is because the system of reward has changed. And it's changing because of speaking up and using our voices and also more black celebrities writing children's books (laughs) like that has actually helped a lot so they're using their power and paying it forward to change the experience for young black youth than what they experience that's again is about consciousness not just thinking about their own wealth and fame yeah, uh, I listened to your address, uh, your interview, uh, uh, Queen's University interview, I think yes. it's the Department of Education, and you said something there. I find the very, you said that it's almost like, you know, I think you're referring to women that are not uh, maybe rejecting their culture, the music, you know, it's almost like not living their full self, like they're, they're half, you know, yeah. I, I forgot how you put that. Can you expand on that, please? <laughs> I've forgotten too. I don't know what I said, but but I'm nodding yes because I can imagine what I would have said. And it's true. You know, when you deny yourself the full right of what I would consider to be the full right of citizenship, right? Think about the think about the language, especially in the Western world. We love to talk about there's certain things that the Western world absolutely loves to talk about. Freedom, right? Citizenship and rights, okay? Those are the cornerstones of democracy. Your freedoms, your rights, and your citizenship. And think about how all those things can be taken away by the state. And most people, again, consciousness, are not aware how you can also take those things away from yourself. 
You can take your right to show up at work the way you damn well feel like, you can take that away. You can take the freedom to be in this world as God made you. You could just take that freedom away from you. Citizenship, you can literally remove your citizenship in the sense of denying your lineage and pretending to be something else. You can do it to yourself. <laughs> and if you do it to yourself, then you're not free. You're just not, you're not living as a whole person. And I think many people just don't realize that they're, that's what they're doing. They think those conversations about rights, freedoms, and citizenships are just about nation states that on an individual level, like you too don't have a role to play in that conversation. And of course you do. And so I think for me, I just, because I've gone on my own personal journey really since 2007. And I say that because I know I look really young, but 2007 is when I turned 30. And so when I turned 30, I just decided, again, it has to be a decision in your life, that I was no longer going to be in the fog that I had been in my 20s and my teenage years. And I say, what I mean by fog is just doing things without any conscious awareness, kind of just following what I saw other people doing. So other people relax their hair, oh, I need to go and relax my hair. Other people were dressing a certain way, oh, let me go and dress the way they're dressing. Like, I just, I, I had the awareness to reflect on those previous decades, that it's like I was just being led, like with a string, like there was a string attached to the people and it was attached to me and wherever the people went, that's just where I was going. I had to step away from that and say, no, if I'm gonna be a full citizen and I'm gonna actually live in a democracy that says that there's freedom and rights, then I need to stop doing what everyone else is doing just because they're doing it. I actually need to start to live in a wholeness where every decision I make is with full conscious awareness, not with, well, that's what they did. So <laughs> ask a woman why she wear a weave and like, well, the people I work with wear one. It's like, that's not an answer. Okay. That's an excuse. Right. And I think that is a journey that everyone has to take. And I, and I keep saying that because it's true. As much as everything we've talked about over this past hour and a half, essentially, at the end of the day, it, someone has to decide that, that, they, that what we've said has, is, is, is resonating. I, you can't force anyone. I remember you said, like, how do, how do we get Black women to stop doing da-da-da-da-da? You can't, <laughs> unfortunately. All you can do, like you said, share the knowledge, present evidence-based truth that is not about opinion but just like literally based in evidence and leave it to the person to decide okay just so to end on this note i am um, i would like to think i've managed to navigate uh, my discussion about black uh, beauty culture with women because it's a very fine line you know first of all i'm not a woman i am black but i'm not a woman so what would the advice be on how to engage in this type of discussion. Like like as a, as a man? As a man, yeah. Discussion a, with women. With regards to black beauty culture, you know, trying to encourage them. You know, uh, I'm hoping the, the purpose of this podcast is just, even if it's just one person that will listen to you 
say all this in, uh, you're yeah. saying and they become conscious about their decision whether before they put on their wig they, they think about you know beyond the look mm. you know so that will be my goal if that will achieve that purpose this, this podcast so but in terms of because I try to talk to people a lot maybe you know casually about this you know so I can sense you know where people are so what would you advise? What would be the best way to navigate discussions about black beauty standards, especially with women? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the most powerful question you can ask someone, I think, is why? Think about little kids. I mean, you have a child, I'm sure. Why is this like that? Why is it? The kids are always asking why. Then you get older and you stop asking why. Instead, you start almost just telling people what they need to do. <laughs> Right. You don't ask because why do children ask why? Because they want to understand. Right. They want to make sense of it because they're in a learning phase and they're trying to like there's so much information and they everything seems confusing. So they're just asking why so they can get clear and say, oh, that's why I have to go to bed at seven, because I need to get enough sleep so that I'm not tired in the morning. Like yeah. basics. Right. <laughs> it's just the basics. As an adult, for some reason, we don't ask why, because I think we feel like we're going to be rude or the person's not going to like the question. So we start to like internalize all these potential reactions <laughs> that you're going to get. For example, if a woman walks in with a weave and you're kind of like, why are you wearing that weave? You're, you, you, you're anticipating that they're not going to like the question. So then you think, okay, I'm not going to ask why. You might have the thought, but the truth is a why is a good place to start. Because then at least it will gauge their their level of receptiveness to the conversation. <laughs> so if you ask the question why and they're like, why are you asking me that? Then you know maybe they're not ready for that conversation. <laughs> okay. And I don't believe in forcing people to have conversations that they're not ready to have. Okay. Professor Cherry Thompson, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. This has been uh, actually a really amazing conversation. Yeah, yeah I really appreciate um, your time. I, I'm so sorry if it has gone slightly more than what you planned no, for. It's fine. It's fine. We just did such a range of like the the the, yeah. the conversation. So I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Take care. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, The Pan African Experience. Join us on Facebook at The Pan African Experience. Follow us on Twitter. TPA Experience and follow us on Instagram, The Pan African Experience. Visit our website at www.thepanafricanexperience.com.